Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, November 9th. This week's elections had the interesting results that we've been talking about in New York, New Jersey, and around the country on abortion rights and more. One thing this election day did not have was losers claiming the election was rigged and that they really won, right? But next year's presidential election has people nervous, understandably, about a 2024 version of what happened after the 2020 election. And with different kinds of Republicans, more election denial-friendly ones in power in some swing states, and as Speaker of the House, how safe is electoral democracy? Well, enter the group Public Agenda, known for its polling and its legacy and origins with the polar poster Daniel, uh, Daniel Yankelevich, Yankelevich and what it now calls a research-to-action orientation as a nonprofit. They have a new project that they call the Democracy Renewal Project, which will focus on strengthening voter participation and trust in elections. Can we have both things? And with us now is Andrew Seligson, president of Public Agenda. Andrew, thanks for coming on WNYC today. Hi. Thank you so much, Brian. It's nice to be here. What's the Democracy Renewal Project? Tell us more. Well, it's it starts as a response to what we see as two interconnected challenges. So one was the one you were just pointing to, which is the challenge facing our democracy broadly. So we see declining levels of trust in institutions, declining levels of trust across partisan lines, everybody thinking everybody else is willing to do Ill- unlawful, unconstitutional, illegal things to seize power. We've seen an increase in political violence in the United States uh, in some some well-known incidents, but also lots of other ones that are being tracked. And I think we see at Public Agenda and among many people working in this area, a genuine risk of a slide toward post-democracy. And obviously, none of us wants to see that. So that's the first challenge. The second related challenge starts with a little bit of good news, which is there are many people, organizations, philanthropy organizations who are working to try to reverse this trend and build a stronger, more resilient democracy. And that's great. It's important. But the challenge we see is that we just don't know enough collectively to take effective action. So there are people trying things, there are organizations funding those things, but we don't have really good evidence about which kinds of reforms, which kinds of civil society practices or efforts are likely to make the most difference. We need a lot more information about what design features might help them be most effective. Uh, There's a lot of different ways, for example, to do ranked choice voting, and we've seen some successful and some less successful efforts. So we need a lot of evidence we don't have there's another piece of good news here, which is there's a lot of researchers who are really excellent at answering those questions. And the role that Public Agenda through the Democracy Renewal Project will play is helping to frame, identify those key questions that really matter to people taking action on the ground, bring those to researchers, and then spur them to do research on these questions. And then we'll help to translate that research to bring it and communicate it in frameworks and formats that that work for people who are doing advocacy, doing activism, for policymakers, funders, journalists, and really try to change the degree to which all of this work is informed by the best evidence that it's possible for us to generate. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And we'll get into some of the research, some of the polling that you might do and other research um, aimed at identifying solutions that build both participation and trust. And I want to follow up on what you said about there being better and worse experiments with ranked choice voting so far. But before we do any of that, just to continue to establish the foundation of what the environment is that we're talking about in this country with respect to these issues, I imagine you've seen the polls that found Republicans as well as Democrats think democracy is endangered, but for opposite reasons. A lot of Republican Americans, not just Trump with his self-interest, think elections can be too easily rigged. So I, I wonder how you're looking at these polls and if you can describe what you see as concerns about democracy on each side since you're trying to be ideologically diverse here. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. As you suggested, we come at this as a nonpartisan organization that believes that democracy really needs ideological diversity among the public and that we need open space for people to debate and discuss and then resolve questions through legislative means and electoral means for choosing who's in those bodies, et cetera. And, you know, as you said, our the first cycle of our democracy renewal project will focus on this sort of these twin requirements of elections, which is they need to be open, accessible to all. We need everyone to have the opportunity to participate. Otherwise, we're not a democracy. But we also need people to trust the outcomes of elections or we're not a sustainable democracy. And one of the things I think that's complicated in talking about all of these issues is that on the one hand, truth matters, and it's really important whether elections really should be trusted and whether, you know, we know, for example, that there are very, very low levels of actual fraud in our system that's been well documented. It's important to say that. It's also true that what people believes, what people believe that matters too. And so in a way, it becomes a fact on the ground, even if those beliefs are not themselves based in fact, they can have a huge impact on our system. And we're seeing that, right? If people believe that someone else is willing to rig the election, it becomes much easier to justify either engaging in election rigging activity themselves or in using non-electoral and illegal means to try to hold power or take power. And that's where you get into these very dangerous downward spiral scenarios that, that really threaten the long-term possibility of maintaining democracy. So it is important to say what's true. And obviously, for example, journalists have a huge role in, in, in communicating to people what we know about what is actually happening. It's also true to figure out how we can deal with the fact that so many people now hold a set of views that may not be grounded in fact, but can nonetheless threaten the foundations of our democracy in the long run. Yeah. So there's a paradox there, right? Um, so what do you think about, for example, election security measures that could build confidence among Republicans, but also wind up serving as voter suppression vehicles, like certain kinds of voter ID laws, minimizing vote by mail or early voting or drop boxes, things like those that were being accused mostly falsely uh, after the 2020 election of, you know, winding up with uh, with ballot stuffing that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I think this is exactly the kind of question that motivates the Democracy Renewal Project and our, our focus on these twin questions as our first kind of uh, cycle for this work. That is to say, I think we have a sense that there's a really big challenge here, that 
you know, it becomes easy to justify voter suppression efforts in a context where people believe that there are these very, very high levels of fraud, that they're worried that that elections are being stolen. It, it's easy to make the case in that context. And I think, you know, at some level, my answer to this is we don't yet know what is the most effective way to take on this challenge of rebuilding trust in ways that do not involve voter suppression or do not involve making it harder for people to vote. I also want to say that, you know, some measures that people get very nervous about, um, we we may not have great evidence that they are likely to significantly reduce voter participation. And so I think building a clearer story, a clear picture based on evidence about what kinds of measures are really protective of democracy and do not, in fact, interfere with voting versus things that are being used, you know, kind of brought in under the cover of protecting democracy, but in fact have the effect of excluding people. I think there's a lot that we can learn about that. And that's one of the areas we want to see people working on. You know, one thing I would say about this is it's, you know, it's not that long ago that many Republicans were very supportive of various kinds of vote by mail and other kinds of access efforts because, for example, senior citizens who tend to vote more for the Republican Party often have a hard time getting to the polls and, and are in a position to take advantage of other technologies. I think we've seen this in some recent elections that whatever is being said on the broad national stage at the state level, Republican candidates have been seeking to encourage people to take advantage of you know, what is often called convenience voting, these various early voting and other approaches. So I do think there is some opportunity to find uh, folks who recognize there's value in opening up opportunities to vote. And I actually think the more evidence we have about the effects of these measures, the fact is in some states, making it easier for more people to vote will probably help Republicans. In other states, it's likely to help Democrats. And the clearer the, the, the evidence, uh, the greater the possibility for having discussions about this that may yield positive results without suppressing uh, people's votes and that will enable people uh, to kind of rebuild trust in elections. Interesting. Wayne in Hempstead, you're on WNYC. Hi, Wayne. Good morning, and thank you, uh, gentlemen. I'm calling to note that, uh, you know, you know Jimmy Carter, of course, spent uh, many decades uh, working to bring fair and free elections in many different countries. The country of France being the most notable example, no, he didn't do the work for that one, but they uh, have been doing a paper ballot on their national election. They have each person do their ballot, and then it is hand-counted in each local counting uh, voting place, and they produce the entire election result by 10 p.m. local time in France. And there is no reason why the United States of America cannot do exactly the same thing. But we have, uh, I spoke with my polling person the other night. He was there for 31 years. He knows everything about what we used to have. He explained why the original lever metal machines in New York here were um, starting to you know be unmaintainable and the parts weren't produced etc so that's fair uh but a hand a hand count we have uh, we had 20 30 volunteers and and workers there at the polling place that i've voted at personally for the last 40 years not a single one that i miss uh every single election yeah. national etc but what i'm saying is our volunteers my dad was a volunteer and 
it is very, very simple to count those ballots and not have machines. By the way, one last thing. The machines, which the machine uh, producers claim are not connected to the Internet, are 100% connected to the Internet during the poll and after the poll during the finalization. I'm not familiar with France at all in this respect, Andrew. I, I wonder if you are. It almost sounds too good to be true. Like in our presidential elections, I think something like 100 million people vote. Could that all be done on paper ballots and be counted by 10 p.m. in each time zone? Well, I, you know, I also I couldn't tell you a great deal about France. I do know in in various countries. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's certainly true that in many countries, the way the you know elections are uh, structured, it is the case that you have results very quickly afterward. And and some of that is you know has to do with some of the things we were talking about, Brian. That if you don't enable you know, mail ballots to come in after election day, um, you, you can get results more quickly. And so those are choices that are, are reasonable to talk about and um, and might look different in different places. I would say one of the things this calls to mind is the real challenges we're having in maintaining our workforce of election officials, election workers. So I, I think it's absolutely true that having high touch systems where Lots of people who are members of your community whom you trust are part of the process and who can tell you that it's all reasonable and fair and maybe they were the ones counting the ballots or they were watching as it was happening uh, or they saw, you know, they understand how the machine works and they trust it for that reason. That's really valuable in all of this. And, and we just have a challenge with this. So there have been huge numbers of retirements from election officials, workers, people just leaving the work because they've come under such stress from uh, partisan attacks, and it's just not worth it to them to stay in the game. It's harder to recruit volunteers in that context, uh, and also just having them experience people to train them. So I think one of the things we should be thinking a lot about is the infrastructure that a trusted election system requires, and trying to get to a point where we can rebuild that. Um, and that has to happen really quickly, obviously, because um, we want we want yeah. elections that uh, begin to rebuild trust rather than kind of strengthen concerns about it. And that that requires lots of people. I think we have seen lots of younger people uh, since 2020 entering uh, into, uh, you know, serving as poll workers, volunteers, et cetera. But we have enormous amount of work to do to make sure that we maintain uh, just professional workforce to carry this burden. Yeah. And we have a couple of poll workers calling in. So let's see what they each think. Briefly, Carmine and Suffolk County, you're on WNYC. Hi, Carmine. Hi, uh, Brian. Yeah, I worked the polls in Suffolk County yesterday, and I was at the poll pad where people check in. And I'd say maybe one out of four, one out of five persons checking in were ready to show me their ID. And when I told them that it wasn't necessary, uh, they it sort of reinforced their skepticism in the process. And it would have just, the poll pad works fine just by, you know, them checking in the way you do without an ID. But if I would have accommodated them and looked at their ID, they would have felt more secure. So it seems to me that allowing poll workers to at least peruse or glance at the ID and verify it when offered, not required, but just when offered, would promote some more confidence in people who mm -hmm. who are predisposed to thinking that 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 things are rigged. 
What's the, the system ID. there that you call Polpad? Is it your signature? Is your ID? Yeah, well, you, people check in. You have an iPad, right? And you ask the person for their uh, last name. You punch in the first four letters of the last name, and then the first three or four letters of the first name, and then it searches the database, and nine out of ten times that person pops up. Then you ask for their address, and they tell you their address. You don't show them the poll pad. Once right. you see that the address is verified, there's more than one person that looks right. You can check their date of birth. And then when you mm -hmm. convince that that's the right person, you, show, you turn the poll pad around, and they sign. Right. So those things serve as the ID. You're saying if there was a physical ID requirement, people might trust it more. Carmine, thank you very much. To a poll worker in Harlem. Gregory, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hi, Brian. I've been working. I got to tell you, man, it's very much like what the last caller just mentioned, you know, but you know, here in New York, we've, we've all got those cards. You know, all we have to do is show the card that we have and um, boom, you're in. And we always have had, and I don't know about other places that I was going to ask your uh, guest. Um, are, are the police at the poll stations? Because we have always had at least one or two cops there at all times. And that's a sense of security to me as a worker, for one thing. And because I live in Harlem, I work the polls here in Harlem. I know all my neighbors. They know me. I'm the guy with the bow tie on. They, they've been, <laughs> they've been, they're always glad to see me every time they come to vote. Gregory, thank you very much. We're going to run out of time soon. What do you think of those two calls taken together? Well, you know, one thing I would say is that one of the challenges we face in the United States is the the fact that elections are controlled by state law. So they look different in each of the 50 states. And then there's often within those state laws, a lot of opportunity for local variation. And so one of the challenges is things that seem normal in one place can seem very strange in another place. And so when people are seeing, especially for presidential elections or, you know, other, you know, control of the House or the Senate, you might see things happening that are reported on the news in another place and they look weird and strange and there must be something up, you know, with that because that's nothing I've ever seen in my local polling place. And I think that is a real challenge for us is how to have people understand we do it in different ways, but there are different safe ways and th that's those things can be consistent i also would agree with the texter who said that you know one of the challenges is you know if you don't have naturally occurring trust in a community and local people who've stayed in the same place for quite a while and you recognize usually we make up for that in public life through formal procedures that everybody understands and has confidence in. So if we can do it without those formal procedures, it can be a lot easier and more efficient where we don't have those kinds of naturally occurring trust relationships. We often need clearer and more well understood rules that everybody understands are being applied. But again, that the great diversity of electoral practices in the United States raises that as a challenge. And again, that's why we think learning more about how within our system, given its complexity, we can build greater public trust in elections. We think that's a really important thing to understand, recognizing that we're not going to do it by sacrificing people's opportunity to participate because that undermines democracy. This is exactly what's motivating public agenda as we take on this work. Andrew Seligson, president of the group Public Agenda, which is launching what they call a democracy renewal project 
to try to increase both voter participation and trust in elections. What a worthy project. Good luck with it. Uh, keep us updated. We'll bring you back on. Thank you so much, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.